Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. This podcast was recorded on September 18th, 2017 at 11am GMT. If you want to find out about upcoming podcasts or anything else we do here at the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash terc. There you can find out information about our MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, our Terrorism and Extremism book series with IB Taurus, and so much more. Also, for the most up-to-date information, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at T-E-R-C-U-E-L, and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. Okay, time for today's guest. Dr. Orla Lynch is currently Director of Criminology Postgrad and a lecturer in Criminology at University College Cork in Ireland. Until 2015, she was Director of Teaching and a lecturer in Terrorism Studies at the CSTPV at the University of St. Andrews. Orla's background is in International Security Studies and Applied Psychology. Her primary training is as a, psycho- as a psychologist. Orla's current research is focused on developing a framework for the application of psychological processes to social issues, particularly terrorism. Her research has looked at victimization and political violence in relation to the direct victims of violence, but also the broader psychosocial impact of victimization and the perpetrator-victim complex. She has also examined the notion of suspect communities in relation to the impact of counter-terrorism measures on Muslim youth communities. And she has recently been the principal investigator on two multi-site EU-funded projects that look at the importance of notions of victimization for former, former perpetrators of political violence and the role of both former perpetrators and victims in ongoing peace initiatives. Her recent books include Terrorism and Psychological Processes, to be published in 2018 by Wiley, Victims and per- Perpetrators of Terrorism, Exploring Identities, Roles and Narratives, published by Routledge in 2017, and Victims of Terrorism, a Comparative and Interdisciplinary Study by Palgrave in, 27, in 2015, not 2017. So, what a CV. Orla, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for joining us on today's podcast. No problem, delighted to do it. So, how did you get involved in this area of research? Well, um, I suppose I came from that uh, applied psychology center in Cork that that has become renowned for producing scholars of terrorism. Um, in my undergrad, I was lucky enough to be a student of uh, John Horgan, Max Taylor, um, another really influential person um, in my early academic career was Liz Dunn, who looked at conflict. Um, she also was a really uh, a powerful speaker, um, very, very motivating. She looked at um, social psychology and most importantly, she looked at the application of psychology to real world issues. So she advocated that psychology has to have something to say and that psychology should speak to social issues, broader social issues beyond the kind of the narrow confines of the discipline. So I think um, all of those things pushed me towards um, master's research um, at St. Andrews, where, again, I was quite lucky in that Paul Wilkinson was um, still teaching, even though he had retired multiple times. And and I was exposed again to some of the the key people in the field um, when I was in St. Andrews um, doing a master's. So I think they were kind of the foundations of it, and that just naturally led me on then to PhD research. And... You talk about your time in Cork, where both of us spent time, and in St. Yeah. Andrews, where both of us spent time as well. Um, 
And you've got, when I asked you for what your influential uh, piece of research were, you've drawn mm -hmm. on lectures, the work of lectures from both of these institutions. Mm -hmm. And the first of this is an edited volume by Max Taylor and John Horgan, uh, who were in UCC at the time that you were there, called The Future of Terrorism. What, what did you really draw from this, this volume? I think I suppose looking back at the volume now, it was certainly before its time. It was innovated, innovative. Um, it it introduced the world to notions that are now so mainstream, like for example, transnationalism. It questioned the the kind of dogma that we had accepted about terrorism. You know, it pushed the boundaries of what was and was not terrorism. It looked at the decline in state-sponsored terrorism, the increase in interstate terrorist organization. It, it, it really, it pushed both academics and security services to move beyond those very rigid ideas. Um, I mean, you could almost say that it, it, it had a predictive quality as well in that it talked very much about the influence of, of what, what became known as Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. But I think the book really, its strength was identifying the role of ideology and the decline in ideology um, for certain movements. Um, so it, I really felt it was a, a, a major contribution. Now, it's not very prominent, um, and it wasn't at the time, but I certainly think it, it played a major part in, in making a serious contribution to, uh, to terrorism research. And for you personally, would you still draw on this, on this book when you're, say when you're writing your, your book on uh, the psychological process of terrorism today, would you still draw on future of terrorism? Well, I think I draw on both Max's and John's work. This, I suppose, um, kind of inspires me to continually refer to the, the need to question um, structures, the need to question categories, um, the need to question assumptions around motivation and ideologies. So in that sense, absolutely. And you then said that you were you were lucky enough to be in St. Andrews at a time where Paul Wilkins, Paul Wilkinson, even though in his third or fourth retirement, probably at this yeah. stage, was still still lecturing. And you've picked a seminal text of his terrorism versus mm -hmm. democracy. Um, mm -hmm. What did you what did you really get from this book? And from your time think, with Paul. Yeah. Well, I think um, Paul was a wonderful teacher. He was a very gracious man. He had time for everybody. He was a true scholar, but he's, he was he was really an amazing teacher. Um, so the book itself has some very important ideas. Um, ideas around the responsibility of the state and the need to protect civil liberties in the face of terrorism, etc. Um, not a very critical text in, in terms of how we might think about terrorism now, but certainly those foundational ideas are really vital to um, in our response to terrorism. But I think the most influential, influential thing about Paul and his work is that he created a space where everybody's ideas were acceptable. And looking back now and thinking of the kind, the kind of things I presented in class, Paul tolerated all of those things and teased them out and never felt like you were taking a, a radical or extreme or ridiculous position. He just created a situation whereby it was the start of a process of negotiation. Um, and he really was, um, apart from his encyclopedic knowledge of all things terrorism, he really was able to foster critical thinking um, in his students. And he, his students really kind of worshipped him in a way. <laughs> Um, in a positive way, you know. 
your informative time in your in your research career came in UCC and St Andrews, and you went on to work in both of those uh, mm-hmm. those both those institutions. Here, as the introduction said, you're currently working in UCC now. Have have you has you have you seen the perspective in both of those uh, in both Cork and St Andrews? Ha, has the way that they've looked at terrorism studies or the the approaches or the disciplines drawing on it in those institutions has that changed or is it still the same as as when you were when you were learning that? Well, I think the the kind of hub that was the centre of terrorism research in UCC um, disappeared when everybody left um, for their various places. So. Of course, Andrew Silk as well from Cork went to London and John went to St. Andrews initially and yourself and myself and um, Max Taylor again, St. Andrews. So I think when that group of people moved away, that research didn't carry on. So in that sense, it was lost. Um, Being back in UCC now, there are a group of people um, who do this type of research, but I see a fundamentally different approach to terrorism and terrorism research and political violence in UCC as I do in St. Andrews. And, and the simplest way to describe it is that there's a highly critical approach to talking about terrorism, political violence in Cork. Okay. Um, it's also much more complex. It's uh, multidisciplinary. Um, there's contributions from law, from philosophy, from criminology, from psychology, from sociology, from epidemiology. So I think there's a huge interest in the area, but I think it's very much tied to our own history. No, I suppose you'd see you'd see it in the the teaching. So, for example, um, I would have master's students um, in UCC in Cork at the moment, and um, they would have very particular ideas about what terrorism is, what political violence is, and it's very much related to their own experience growing up in Ireland, but also things like the recent 1916 centenary celebrations and a romanticization of what happened in the Troubles and a very historic view. Um, so almost they're quite removed from it, even though it's quite recent. Um, The knowledge around what terrorism is and what political violence is, particularly in relation to the Troubles, is quite limited, I would have to say. Um, But there is an innate sense of um, suspicion, I suppose you would say, around um, the study of terrorism, what terrorism is. In St. Andrews, many of the staff, well, many of the students really were police security studies. So you had very much a focus on practitioner perspectives. You had a focus on solutions um, and there was less of a desire to kind of attend to a more critical approach. Now, that's not to say we didn't do that but you can see the difference in the cohort and it's it's interesting from both perspectives because you're obviously challenging both the securitized kind of perspective and also the the romanticization of a conflict both of those perspectives so you're you're trying to create a sense of balance in doing that um but it's just interesting to see how the perspectives are very very different you know even in scotland and ireland so you mentioned when we were talking about the future terrorism by Max Taylor and John Horgan, that you really draw on their their later work as well in your in your current writings. What do you feel are the key take home messages uh, from those later works uh, for you and for others? I think Max's work. Um, I'm not sure that he wrote it down anywhere, but he always talked about separating the notion of terrorism from the actor who is the terrorist. And one of the things he always talked about was how terrorism is the big geopolitical phenomenon it's the media hype 
it's the political response, and it's not something that lends itself to psychological analysis. When he referred to the terrorist actor, he wasn't he wasn't diminishing it to you know the sum of one's behaviours, but he talked about the unit unit of analysis needed to be something tangible, and that in the in the in the book myself and uh, Carmel Joyce, who's also a, a postdoctoral fellow in in UCC in Cork, um, we talk about how um, psychology can't answer all social problems. Psychology is one element in the story of how we might understand terrorism. And we have to ask ourselves, is terrorism a psychological problem? And the answer to that has to be no. But are elements of terrorism psychological problems, like the behavior of the actor, like the relationship of the actor, like the interpersonal activity of the actor? And the answer there is yes. So that's kind of the position we've taken um, when we're writing the framework for the application of psychology to terrorism research and terrorism groups. I suppose John's work, um, his influence for me was always um, kind of instilling a confidence in how um, psychological research and applied psychological research has something very valid to say about terrorism and the idea that existing knowledge on terrorism should be applied and we're not reinventing the wheel in terms of seeking knowledge around the behavior of individuals. So I think that that has always come through in his work and very recently with his special issue on psychology and terrorism. So I think that's the kind of big, the big lesson um, that John kind of imparted to me. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really core lesson that we we have throughout the history of psychological research and across other disciplines, we have. Uh, investigated uh, these so, some of the key issues here so there's no point in trying to reinvent the wheel I think that's a it's a core message coming through from a lot of the the interviewees from a lot of the podcasts today and as I mentioned the final book that you that you picked um it's by Timothy Natchbull. Uh, it's from a clear blue sky surviving the main bo- main baton bomb. This relates to the um, the IRA's uh, murder of uh, Timothy mm-hmm. Natchbull's grandfather, um, Lord Louis Mountbatten and Mullock Moore in the 19- late 1970s in, in Sligo in Ireland. Um, this isn't a piece of academic research. Could you describe this book to our listeners and why why have you picked this? I suppose this book, um, despite being, you know, the kind of testimony of one individual, really presents the reader with all the elements of what terrorism is. For me, um, Timothy's story talked about his parents, his grandparents, their land in Sligo, the, the country manor house in Sligo related to, of course, the kind of colonial history. And it demonstrates their place in the local community, how the local people viewed them, how they were perennial outsiders, but had this kind of superficial relationship with the help. And they talked about that. And it also, it, it, it looked at national issues. It looked at who was willing to rescue them when they needed rescuing from the sea, who was willing to share information, how the Gardaí responded to it, how they were treated in the hospital, how they were treated by the government afterwards. It really delves into the entirety of the experience of terrorism and, you know, how it impacted him, how it impacted the local community, um, how it impacted the family. I think all of those messages are there. So it's not necessarily an analysis of what went on, but in terms of victimhood, but importantly, situating victimhood um, as a really, really important part of understanding terrorism. I think this book is key. Yeah. And I, and 
the effect of um, of Mountbatten's death mm-hmm. uh, on Mullochmore on the local mm-hmm. community is it's still you can still see it to this day. You can see mm-hmm. it with when uh, Prince Charles and uh, uh, Camilla Parker Bowles joined uh, visited. Um, visited Mullochmore in the recent years and the welcome that they were given by people who would have been there at the on the day of the attack, by people who would have been helping out, um, people in the local hotels and bars who would have opened up their doors to this as well. Um, it also, I feel, shows the effect that um, while Timothy Nashville was on the boat uh, and was very lucky to survive, um, it shows the effect that this can have on a community, even though it might... As you say, it there might have been, from an outsider looking in, it might have been a divide between um, Mount Batten and his family and the the locals. Mm-hmm. There was a very much a, a a welcoming there from the community to them. Mm-hmm. And this, like your research, I think one of the key things that that your research shows in is when looking at terrorism studies as a whole we don't have to look at terrorism and we don't just have to look at the terrorists and this is something that comes from your writing I feel that you you talk about that we need to look also at the non-terrorist actors Mm -hmm. as well and your work with Javier Argumenez looking at victims um is is key uh it's it's something that's often forgotten in terrorism studies the Mm -hmm. the key role that we need to have a look at the victims and the role that that testimonies by by people like Nashville uh, the the role that that can give us and one of the groups of victims that your your current research is looking at and I'm going to move on to your own research now uh, are child child returnees from conflict zones mm-hmm. and you've selected a RAN issue paper um, from the RAN Center mm-hmm. of Excellence uh, looking at the at this issue um, could you just tell our listeners what this paper is about um, what you uh, what were your key findings and more? And with this paper, it's a lot of key recommendations as well. Mm-hmm. I think um, this paper ties in really well with the idea of victimhood. I suppose for me, understanding victimhood in relation to terrorism is, and, and you know, the famous word, it's complex, right? But it is exceptionally complex because like crime, like ordinary non-political crime, many of the perpetrators of terrorism claim victimhood they claim victimhood based on their youth their experiences with um you know uh security services and police during the conflict or they claim vicarious victimhood based on their sense of identity and their treatment of people abroad etc so i mean the thing to bear in mind with victimhood and terrorism is that it's certainly not black and white you know there tends to be a difference created in the literature and in the media between victims of one-off spectacular attacks of the 9-11s the 7-7s you know the paris the paris attacks and and the madrid train bombings between those one-off attacks and the attacks that happen as part of an ongoing conflict And it ties into this notion of innocence and innocent victimhood and that if you are in the wrong place at the wrong time, if you were on the train or the bus when it was when it exploded, then you were an example of innocent victimhood. And we have a greater tolerance for that type of victimhood than we might, for example, with, you know, uh, brothers in Northern Ireland who were killed by either the UVF or the UDA or the IRA, whoever it happens to be. So there's that kind of complexity there. And I think that it's, it's always important that you know, we understand that and we understand how that's used and and interpreted. But also the cycle, you know, the idea of either 
altruism born of suffering whereby victims of terrorism go on to do wonderful things in the hope that their experience might be used to prevent anybody ever suffering like they did and you see that for example um uh, irish irish listeners may well know the story of the miami show band massacre and uh, the survivors of the miami show band massacre do um fantastic work whereby they present the testimony of victims on a cross-community platform so that people will understand what terrorism means what being a victim means and um, and fascinating work really around the civil cases taken by the uh, uh, Michael Gallagher from the OMA self-help and support group family of the OMA bomb victims and also against Stephen Travers from the Miami show band and their civil case which has led to um, access to material previously being held related to the Glenan gang etc so victims have a really really prominent place to play and so my interest in victims kind of um, really came about when I heard the existing narratives on child returnees from Syria. Now, this is a very, I mean, numerically, this is a very small problem. Um, you know, in the UK, you're talking about a handful of families. They talk in France about an awful lot more, but this is a very small problem. Um, but the, pro- the the issue itself was is that the children were treated as a security threat. So they were talking about children returning with their parents from Syria, and the fear was that in, in time to come that these children would become violent or they'd become terrorists or whatever it would happen to be. And so the the, pro- the, the issue with in this paper was to dispel that myth. So I worked with a psychologist, uh, Sharon Lambert, who has done work with um, trauma and addiction for young people, also with some uh, refugee families, and basically looking at how we should think about and how we should frame this issue of child returnees. And the entire frame is that it's around trauma. It's about trauma-informed practice. It's about how we have learned from treating child soldiers in other arenas and that we must consider um, that the threat is not one of terrorism, that the threat is one of self-harm, maladaption, all of these issues um, in terms of child development. And that's kind of the priority, and that's hopefully the message that we get across in the paper. And in this as well, you you talk about towards the end the risk factors as well mm-hmm. for um, for these children returning, and you you emphasise clearly throughout the paper that you need to focus on individual cases. It's it's mm-hmm. not going to be the same for everyone, mm-hmm. um, and for some people, certain aspects might be risk factors, but others might not be. And one of the things you say is that while a lot of um, a lot of people might approach this by utilizing the family, but for some, the family can at times be a risk factor or be mm-hmm. the risk factor. What did you yeah. mean by this? Um, I think the priority here is that we view the family and the child in a child protection framework. Mm-hmm. So um, the criteria that apply to any family, radical or not radical, you know, Syrian travelers or not, that's the criteria we use to judge harm and safety for the children in this environment. So, for example, if a child or a family were referred to, were referred to social services, um, the normal criteria of risk would be used whether or not they were families who had returned from Syria. Now, in some cases, the parents are incapable of support. They may have addiction issues. You know, they may be highly traumatized. And in those sense, the family aren't offering resilience against the new lifestyle, against, you know, uh, settling down at school, all of these issues. So in those cases, um, the family can be a risk factor. It's not necessarily related to radicalization. One of the big things that we wanted to get across in the paper was that um, 
this fear of ideology amongst young children or that they've been exposed to a radical ideology. A radical ideology is a very useful thing for young kids. If a child is growing up in a war zone and they witness extreme violence, they're party to extreme violence, they're forced into participating, they can understand the world in very black and white terms if they have an extreme ideology. Mm-hmm. So they understand why they hate us, why we must harm them to protect ourselves, etc. So in that sense there is a benefit to it. And the children are using that ideology in that way to understand the world. Um, The fear, of course, is that they come back and this ideology turns into some kind of transnational um, terrorism later on in life. But the reality is that once children settle in school, once children have a supportive environment, once the family are stable and settled, that ideology will naturally be replaced based on their kind of experiential, you know, interaction with the world they're currently in. But there's a fear and there's a paranoia around this radical ideology and how it impacts on the child itself, but also this idea of a contagion effect that they might, you know, they might infect the children close to them with a radical ideology. And so there's no evidence whatsoever for that. What we have seen is children who are child soldiers and involved in conflict, they're more likely to harm themselves than others, have addiction problems as they're older have um you know developmental issues in their teenage years but this is not an issue of you experience extremism as a child you become an extremist as an adult there's absolutely no evidence for that and we have to be very very careful to constantly challenge that assumption because we will move away then from the very well tested and tried child protection policies that have been decades in the making and end up in a very dangerous situation which might be for example de-radicalization centers for mother and children which have emerged in other places. Yeah, and this really draws on what we were talking about earlier, that there there shouldn't always be a knee-jerk reaction to try and reinvent the wheel, that as this as this report clearly shows, is that we can draw on our understanding from 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 the the history of of child soldiers, from the history of research in relation to child trauma, etc. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it really it really hits that home and it really clearly uh, put forward uh, what can and should be done and what what are the the right approaches to take you you mentioned there in that discussion about the these children when they're over in places like Syria and that they're exposed to or utilized or by um, by members of groups such as um, the as Isis how do what are the roles that or what do what do these groups use these children for or how do they use them well, there's a few different pieces of research um there's also media accounts of what's going on over there um and if you were to take the uh, un definition of child soldiers the use of a child to forward any of the aims of a violent group mm-hmm. it, that is the definition of a child soldier so if the child is transporting information if the child is passing on messages that in effect is a child soldier um, so I suppose we kind of focus on, you know, the child with the knife and the beheadings and the weapons, but the manipulation and the control isn't necessarily about the doing of the violence. I mean, that's very, it's it's an elite group, right? Mm-hmm. So they're the, the very particular group of children. And it's like any terrorism, and it's like any terrorist group. The children will have many, many roles, but they'll be exposed to the violence, they'll be exposed to the manipulation, they'll be exposed to the control. So any involvement by children with a group as violent as IS um, is problematic. Yeah. And this kind of exposure um, to conflict, this kind of exposure uh, and the trauma uh, that comes as a result of it, 
what has research shown us about how this may disrupt their de the developmental process of, of these children, or does it disrupt it? Well, I think that the main thing is that children are extremely resilient. Mm -hmm. And once removed from that context, they have the capacity to bounce back. Um, I think the biggest issue for children in a conflict zone or children who have been co-opted as child soldiers is that it's never just that. Mm -hmm. So there's um, multiple instances of abuse, mm -hmm. uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, malnutrition, uh, you know, they, they're missing out on school, they're isolated from their family. So you have many and repeat instances of trauma. And again, it's not just um, it's not just one off scenario. So it's constant. And then you have a situation where these children may be refugees. They may be traveling from Syria, trying to get a home in Europe. And the settlement process, again, is highly traumatic. So you're talking about complex trauma for these kids. And there's an awful lot of research about complex trauma and toxic stress. But the biggest issue is that um, there's massive capacity for resilience. They talk about the idea of having one good one good adult. And the idea of having one good adult is that if a child has the um, the opportunity to engage with one stable adult in their lives, they have a very, very high chance of coping with a traumatic situation or a history of trauma. And this, this really, uh, it goes back to your point that the, when we talk about victims of terrorism, that it's not just, uh, it's not binary, it's not you're going to be the direct victim of an attack or, mm -hmm. you're, or you're not. Like, these, these children are another category of victims of terrorism mm -hmm. as well. They're just uh, in a different way. And I think you, you conclude the report in a, with a really clear point that should be taken on board, that even though it might be portrayed that these, these children were active within these groups that they were joining for want of a better word under duress here they mm -hmm. were they were victims of abuse uh, of a form of abuse here and that therefore the uh, involvement of a criminal justice solution can further traumatize them as well mm -hmm. so we have to be very careful of of how how we approach this really complex problem um moving forward it's uh it's as all these pieces that we're discussing uh, in today's podcast, this report, links to this report are available on our website as well. So if you go to Orla's profile on the, the Talking Terror website, you'll be able to get a link to this report. And I'd really encourage you to read this and and all of, of Orla's work, of course. Uh, the next the next piece that I want to, to talk to you about is your piece uh, from Critical Studies on Terrorism. It's entitled British Muslim Youth, Radicalization, Terrorism and the Construction of the Other. Uh, this is based on empirical research, 66 interviews um, with uh, British uh, Muslim uh, young people uh, or Muslim young people within Britain. Um, and these aren't extremists these weren't members of terrorist groups even though this has terrorism in the title and it's in a uh, a journal on terrorism you could actually pin this as a piece not about terrorism at all it's just about Absolutely. it's about muslim identity so Absolutely. what what is this about and why did you feel it important to place it within a terrorism journal for me this article spoke to the idea that young muslim men were potential radicals that the literature on terrorism spoke about how Muslim identity and Muslim heritage, transgenerational issues in Muslim culture, that all of those things were part of the radicalization story. And what I wanted to do with this article was to say, 
what we have here are the normal psychological processes of teenage development, identity conflict, identity denial, identity transition. All of these things are what happens when people go through adolescence. Now, you can compare this group to, um, say, white uh British people, you can compare this group to immigrant British families, you know, it's not relevant who you necessarily related to because all of these factors in adolescent development are normal, but they're pathologized in the case of British Muslim youth. So for example, they talk about identity conflict between the generations where the uh, young British men uh, are born in Britain, have their education experience in Britain, but their parents perhaps are born in Kashmir or Pakistan, and they're rejecting their parents' culture. That's exactly what you might expect. That's exactly what you see with other cultures, with other immigrant groups. However, in this case, um, a number of authors have claimed that that identity conflict between the generations is part um, of evidence of an extremism. Um, and there, and there's, there's a huge leap in many, many cases from normal psychological developmental processes to extremism or potential extremism where the entire body of young muslim men in britain are are seen as suspects and it's it, it really hits home with and again when we move on to your your book uh, about applying psychology to to terrorism studies it hits home that a lot of what we read isn't based and a lot of these models that we would see about radicalization isn't based mm -hmm. on the, the collection of empirical data it and if it is it's not always compared to a non-extremist population as well do you feel that that's really what what do you feel that this has held back our development of our understanding and do you think that it's uh, clouded our judgment of what are the key factors I think that we haven't made enough use of the existing material, not necessarily in this instance from psychology, but from immigration studies, for example. Um, we know an awful lot about the process of integration, assimilation, etc. And that's not been drawn into this debate. So what we see is studies conducted with Muslim, British Muslim youth or Irish Muslim youth, whoever it happens to be, we have a collection of concepts and themes that emerge in the research around identity, around culture, around fitting in, and we then tag those as being relevant for extremism and radicalization. However, if we compare them, like you said, to any other population, we'd see that they're a normal part of the process. And that is in part to do with the isolation of terrorism studies in the 2000s, and that it emerged in a kind of reactionary way to try and produce solutions to terrorism. And it wasn't based in any one particular discipline. It wasn't based in any school. And so there was no process by which oversight of the methods, etc., would have been managed. Um, and that relates to the journals, etc. So, I mean, there's lots of complex issues in this. But I think one of, one of the biggest problems here is the kind of disciplinary isolation that it suffered. Um, and the result is um, hugely problematic claims that are not based on empirical evidence. And if it is empirical evidence, it's it's conducted in isolation. And in this, uh, you draw on uh, some fascinating quotes from from your interviewees. And one of the sections that you focus on is the construction of an identity of British Islam. Mm -hmm. What was it that you found? What were your interviewees telling you about this in particular? I mean, it's very interesting. It's absolutely the opposite of what what is what is talked about in the security 
security kind of arena. So what you saw is that you saw young British people, both men and women, using Islam as a way to free themselves from their parents. So um, they would talk about their parents, say Bangladeshi heritage. So if their parents were Bangladeshi Muslims, what they would talk about is that their parents would have um, traditions, cultural traditions from Bangladesh that have no basis in, say, the Quran or the Hadith. And so the young the, the young kids would be saying to their parents, well, that's not Islam, that's Bangladeshi. So they started separating culture from Islam. Uh, but what they were doing was they were really using their kind of experience in British schools, a British education system to create their own sense of Islam. They would also take the rules of Islam about women traveling on their own, for example. They would say to their parents, I want to go to destination A, B or C. The parents would say, no, you're not going on your own. They would say, well, actually, in the Quran, it says that I can. And the parents couldn't respond to that because the kids were better educated. So they were using it in a very unique way to kind of map out their own destiny and map out their own place in British society. Mm. And they used that in, in an awful lot of ways. And what you saw was the, the emergence of this British Islam because they talked about it being stripped of the cultural baggage of their parents. But what it was was very much a kind of British interpretation of how they practice their faith. Mm. And... In, obviously, you're carrying out your interview, uh, your interviews for this piece in a post 9-11 and post 7-7 mm -hmm. uh, environment in Britain. And you don't have obviously uh, you don't have a comparison group to what it was mm -hmm. like pre uh, these attacks. Mm -hmm. But what effect did you find that these uh, attacks and the reaction from the community at large had uh, had on their identity uh, in the aftermath? I did interview, um, as part of a bigger study, the older generation. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to the... So, so one of the big things, and this is kind of reported widely across the literature, is that after 9-11, there was very much a sense of the label Muslim being applied, that you were no longer Pakistani or Indian or Kashmiri, you were just Muslim. Mm -hmm. And um, that sense of change was felt very sharply by younger people who were kind of coming of age around the time of 9-11. The older generation spoke about events in the 90s and the 80s, the riots, um, the publication of Salman Rushdie's work, etc. They spoke about that as, you know, the kind of visibilization of the Muslim community. So while the generation coming of age around 9-11 kind of felt this sharp shift in their identity, the older generation said, well, this has been coming a long time. So um, there was certainly a difference in experiences. In terms of the identity, um, what you did, what I did find was a closing down of identity opportunities. So there was this horrendous kind of media effort to link loyalty to identity. So were you British first or were you Muslim first? And some of the kids that I interviewed, they'd say that to me without even being probed. They knew that this was a topic. They would say, well, look, I'm Muslim first. And I would never have asked that question. So they were primed to kind of answer those questions. And um, so all of those things, they weren't evidence of a rejection of a British identity. They were evidence of a rejection of the way they were being treated. You know, the kind of negative treatment of Muslims. So what you found, for example, is you have pupils saying, oh, pick a number, 40% of British Muslim youth reject a British identity and choose an Islamic identity as first. Well, that's a rejection of their treatment. It's nothing to do with radicalization or extremism. That's a response to the local experience of these kids in Birmingham and in London at that time. So there was an awful lot of problems around the use of identity research, bad identity research and its relationship to radicalization. And what effect then does, as I said, this, as we've been talking it, and as I introduced this, this isn't a piece on terrorism, this is a piece mm -hmm. on identity. 
but it is housed within the terrorism literature uh, for a reason. So what effect do you, what do you think the core findings from this research are that can be applied uh, for terrorism scholars and practitioners as well? I think one of the biggest lessons from this article is the, the, the assumptions around identity processes and any relationship to extremism need to be challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is an interesting, so this research was followed up later on with further interviews and one of the interesting things was the growing in confidence of their ability of Muslim youth to separate themselves from the extremists whereas in the beginning there was a fear that nobody knew what extremism was nobody knew who the radicals were parents were terrified their children would be you know kidnapped on the street corner by a recruiter they would follow their kids at night so there was very much a sense that they had no idea what this was and there was very much they, they kind of experienced the finger being pointed at them and as a community being told well you must you must be part of the solution but they didn't know what that was and you saw as the years went on, 2012, 2013, 2014, you saw the families and the young people come to the point of saying, you know what, this has nothing to do with me. I'm not the solution to this. I'm not this problem. And, and this is not me. And this is not my community. So there was very much a sense of being able to stand up and say that almost a confidence in their kind of Muslim identity. Um, and that, I mean, that's quite a useful thing. I mean, that's quite a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Um but that took a long time. That took a long time. And I think that has implications for how the security services and the police deal with young people. Um, I think the security services and the police need to be aware of this type of information so that it's not misinterpreted. Um, but I, I see this piece as very much kind of background knowledge to inform um, how we might think overall about intervention with and knowledge around Muslim youth. Yeah, and uh, I, I think it's, a, it's an excellent piece. And um, it had been a while since I had read it, but I read it again in the in the lead up to this uh, to this interview, and it really does have some key lessons that uh, that we can take take from it um, and apply to to the way that we think about these core issues, not just around radicalization, but key issues around identity as a whole as well. And the final piece of yours that you've selected, it's um, it's not yet it's not yet out. So this is this it's is your chance yet. to promote it now. Um, I hope the writing and the the finishing of the writing is going well for it but it's it's a it's a book that you're going to be bringing out in 2018 um called terrorism and psychological processes uh, i've read one chapter from it already mm-hmm. or one one current uh, existence of the of the chapter and I, I really had some some great points raised already but for the listeners what is your aim for this book what, what can they expect from this book I think in one way, this is um, a book that reigns in our efforts to understand terrorism using psychology. So I referred earlier to the point that um, not all social problems are psychological problems. And psychology has an awful lot to say about the social world, and it should have an awful lot to say about the social world. But the way in which psychology is applied to the study of terrorism isn't taking the best of the field and applying it in an appropriate manner. So we we started off, myself and Carmel Joy, started off thinking about how should we use, one, the existing knowledge that we have on psychology in order to apply it to terrorism, but also can we develop a framework whereby we can assist people in their planning for and preparation for doing terrorism research purely from a psychological perspective. I suppose some of the problems we came across as well were that, you know, where is psychology introduced? 
you know, is psychology in the development of the project? Is it an aftermath? Are we just talking about profiling and mental health and personality disorders? Is that where psychology comes in? And where is it best placed? Um, but also we were very interested in making the leap between um, theory, the creation of theory, and the um, solutions, I suppose, you know, applying it, the so what of research. Um, can we do anything about the problem? And it was so, there's a huge gulf there between the knowledge that we're going to create when we apply psychology and then an effort to create interventions. So to change a particular behavior, or to intervene with a particular behavior. And we wanted to try to create a situation where that gulf could be understood and perhaps that terrorism research could be used to inform intervention. Because, I mean, intervention is a huge issue at the moment. I mentioned already de-radicalization programs. We know there's a number of programs across Europe, um, you know, with right-wing groups and left-wing groups and Islamist groups. And those let's just say some of them are problematic mm-hmm. um, and, and we wanted to get at the detail of how we might go about having an empirical basis for intervention based on psychological research yeah. and for anyone who's interested in, in more in-depth discussions about de- these de-radicalization programs you can listen back to the episode with Kurt Braddock there were also the episodes with Sarah Marsden and Bart Shurman as well who have carried out some really interesting research on this and from reading this chapter that uh, that uh, that you sent me on I can really I can really hear those lectures from UCC uh, <laughs> coming through here you clearly make that distinction between the terrorist and terrorism Mm -hmm. as as you said max used to um, used to always say to you um and continues to say and you you there in in your discussion you talk about um you you talk about uh, how we can apply this not just in gaining an academic understanding but how we can apply this in critically examining um, interventions um, how we can use our research uh, in the real world as well and it, you also talk about uh, how a lot of psychological research is based on laboratory uh, mm-hmm. experiments and how there is a difficulty there of applying these uh, to the real world but also there's a perceived difficulty in being able to use this traditional approach to researching psychology, to researching the psychology of, of terrorism. Um, do you feel that, no, how, what effect do you feel that that's having? Um, I suppose, you know, there's a place, obviously, for the experimental methods in psychology, um, and it has a place in the development of theory, um, and we need that knowledge that's created in that environment. But when you think about um, applying psychology to complex social problems, um, psychological research can't provide answers to vaguely imagined problems. So crime or terrorism or antisocial behavior, those big ideas, they can't be solved by terrorism because what are they fundamentally only social terms? Psychology can offer an evidence-based analysis of specific parts of a problem. And um, we can achieve intervention success and we can achieve knowledge um, if we are specific and the problem variables are identified. So what I think psychology has to offer is that we draw on the scientific mindedness of that experimental method. And we look at, for example, we can draw on lessons from epidemiology and medicine and behavior change around smoking and behavior change around diet and all of these things to understand how, first of all, how complex behavior changes, but also how specific it needs to be. So I think that those lessons and those tools from psychology you know, honed over many, many years of experimental method have a place now 
in a non-experimental kind of empirical field. Mm-hmm. And you also state in, in this in this chapter that the foundational psychological processes that <laughs> we see um, in people who become involved in terrorism, that that isn't necessarily the same as the causes of terrorism. Mm-hmm. Why did you feel it was important to make this point? I think if you, I mean, I suppose the reason we, we kind of started with that point is that to say that the information we need for intervention is not the same as the information we need or we create when we're doing research. Mm-hmm. So, the, and, and you know, this is kind of going back to the old idea that people join terrorism for one reason and stay for a very different reason altogether. Um, and, it, and it's kind of tapping into those ideas and that it's, it's about how do we gather the information needed for intervention? What is intervention going to be? What is the problem going to be versus knowledge about the process of getting involved? How, why, all of those questions. So I think there's a need to separate the two of them because what tends to happen is we gather information usually kind of short-term um, studies are carried out you know rapidly about who goes to Syria why they go how they come back what you know what are their needs that kind of short-term view we take that information we reverse engineer it and it becomes a de-radicalization program you know and that's hugely problematic because um, and, and one thing we need to recognize there is the role of prison and probation research and understanding how we might intervene with people who go to Syria. So lots of meetings with uh, RAN, Prison and Probation Group, SEP, the European um, Prison Group as well, about how they deal with um, political offenders, terrorist offenders, whatever you want to call them. And there's some very interesting approaches, approaches that are still ongoing. So if we look at Northern Ireland, political ideology is not relevant. It's not part of the process. It's not part of the prison treatment. It's not part of the probation experience. And, you know, so that is one approach, but that's kind of dismissed as irrelevant in in this current, say, um, situation around right wing and Islamists. So I think we need to be very aware that there's a long history in Europe around intervention with these individuals at, at both the psychological and the kind of social level. And we need to not forget that they have very valid things to say that are completely unrelated to terrorism and radicalization, but are very much related to social processes, interpersonal development, all of those things. And I suppose it's a, one of the key messages for, from, from what you've been saying is that um, throughout all, your re, of, all of your research is that there shouldn't be this sort of terrorist exceptionalism, that there's something exceptional about the terrorists that we can't learn anything from previous non-terrorist research. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But also within terrorism studies, there's sort of, it, there seem to be like this exceptionalism about, well, groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS are like nothing we've ever seen before. Mm-hmm. So therefore we can't learn anything from, as you mm-hmm. were talking about there, the uh, about Northern Ireland, about people mm-hmm. uh, who are involved in the troubles and so on. And so therefore we have to reinvent the, the wheel mm-hmm. in, in regards mm-hmm. to that as well as terrorism as a whole. Um, I think these are these are really key messages to take out that, yeah, we can learn from other uh, from other things that we've gotten before. We don't always have to start from from square one. But I feel I've got sort of John Horgan uh, in my ear at the moment and he'll be saying, well, there's already a book on the psychology of terrorism. There are multiple books on the psychology of terrorism out there. What, like, why do you feel that this has something new to offer? I think this offers a framework. I mean, that's the point of what we're doing. So we're, you know, this isn't necessarily talking about, um, you know, the processes themselves and how we might understand individuals and the group, etc. This is about focusing on the perceived attributions of the problem, um, understanding how they become more and more clearly defined, and a step-by-step process for how we might 
see the role of psychology in the study of terrorism. Um, and we've modeled that on a problem-solving framework by um, Bunk and Voot, I'm probably pronouncing their names incorrectly, they're Dutch, and um, we've, ex we've built on and expanded that profile. So the aim of this book is actually to provide a, you know, a guideline or a framework for people who want to do this work. Um, and it's not about creating research questions, it's about problem definition. And problem definition isn't about the definition of the term, it's about recognizing where psychology is best placed to intervene, where psychology is best placed you know, to offer a solution, but also to enable psychology to speak to the other macro systems that are dominant in the field of terrorism studies. And that's a lot of the problem as well, is that psychology doesn't speak the language you know the practitioner language and how is it that we overcome that yeah. no i think it's it's going to be a really important book and it does uh, i was only winding you up there when i said what's the <laughs> why, why is there a need for another psychology <laughs> terrorism book but i think it will really add something uh really worthwhile and really practical um for for people both in academia and practitioners mm -hmm. as well uh, when do we should we expect it to be out <clears throat> um, is that the toughest now, question? No, 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 no. It's due to the publishers in about two weeks, and it's, it's very nearly there. So I'd say six months. And you're actually giving up an hour of your time now to do this interview? I am giving when up you're, an hour Yeah, I'm, I'm Procrastination honored. is the name of the game here, <laughs> exactly, you know? <laughs> exactly. Well, with that in mind, I know you have to get back to the writing then, but I'll, I'll just, I just want to, to finish up the interview by asking you more a broad general question about terrorism studies as a whole. I, how do you see the health of terrorism studies uh, moving forward and at the moment? I think compared to seven years ago, it's a in a fantastic place. Um, if you go to conferences, if you hear, you know, PhD presentations, the type of work that's been carried out is the type of work that was being cried out for around the time of 7-7 and in the years afterwards. There's a sophistication around the research. There's a, a use of methods that we hadn't seen in the past. So I really think that... Um, it's very, very positive. Um, I think we're starting to move towards an interdisciplinarity. Um, and I think there's some very interesting, but, and I say this cautiously, very interesting work between practitioners and academic. And that, that, that needs to be managed very, very carefully. Um, but I think that's a very beneficial move as well. Mm -hmm. um, why do you feel that, that it's much healthier now then? What, what's brought this about? I think a recognition, well, I've heard, there's a massive interest in the field. Um, I think there's very high quality scholars doing the work. I think they have a recognition that it doesn't take 150 interviews with former terrorists or extremists to do terrorism research. So we have social media analysis. We have analysis with, you know, media communication analysis. And I think that's really, really useful. And it's expanding the field and it's expanding our understanding away from that very, very small conception of what terrorism is around the shooter, the bomber, and those immediately who support them. So it's not stagnation then, no? Absolutely not. I don't think so. Okay. That's, it's a great positive message to, to finish on. Uh, Orla, I'd like to, to thank you so much for, for giving up your time for this interview. Um, if anyone wants to read any of the pieces that were referred to, please go on our website, uel.ac.uk slash TERC, and go on to Orla's profile on the Talking Terror page. And you'll be able to click on links to all of these uh, pieces that were talked about, both in relation to Orla's own research, as well as the research which influenced her research by Max Taylor, John Horgan, Paul Wilkinson and Timothy Natchbull's uh, account of surviving the main, main Batten bomb. 
Uh, thank you to Jamie Murray for editing today's podcast, as always. And please join us next week to hear another Irish voice, another Irish expert on terrorism, Dr. Paul Gill from University College London. I'll be talking to him about his work on lone actor terrorism and the role that uh, psychology can play in understanding this as well. And uh, I look forward to, uh, to talking to you all then. Until then, talk to you soon. Bye.